Today's conversation is with Nicole Gibson, and I recently saw Nicole speak at a local entrepreneurs event and was like, this is a really great message. She's a really engaging speaker, and I'd love to shoot the shit with Nicole about life and creativity and particularly not so much creativity in the art sense, but really in the expressing yourself sense. So this conversation is all about our relationship to ourself and the piece around self-expression. We also touch on confrontation because um, this is something that has been coming up a lot for me recently is being okay to speak my truth, even if it makes other people uncomfortable. If this is your first time here and you're digging the conversation, please, I invite you to hit subscribe. There are plenty more incredible guests in the back catalogue and coming your way. Would love to hear from you at carlynimmo.com and may I introduce to you, Nicole Gibson. Creativity, self-expression and feelings. Creativity, self-expression and feelings. Make some noise, 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 make some noise. Not only it's a podcast. Okay, let's hear it. Hey, awesome listeners. My name is Nicole Gibson. I'm the CEO of a company or a movement, should I say, called Love Out Loud. And our mission and vision why we come to work every day is to facilitate the world's largest love-based movement by the end of 2020 by engaging 4% of the Western population. Cool. So talk to me about how that, well, actually, let's go back. How did you get to that being a mission? Because I'm pretty sure that would be have been driven by something maybe may, maybe catastrophic. Maybe, yep. Um, I would say you know, ten a ten year journey professionally of um, sort of uncovering and um, excavating why there's this epidemic in mental illness in our world, and I was just so passionately driven to understand it more deeply because I knew that it wasn't um, as simple as a biological predisposition that so many people in the Western world. Um, apparently have and um, had a very strong belief, especially after my own lived experience, that it was largely influenced by culture and largely influenced by environment. And they're two things that we actually have a lot of control over. So after working with hundreds of thousands of people um, and trying to see if that hypothesis had any validity, what I started to notice is there's actually these things that surprisingly bind us as human beings, and that's humanity, right? We have this humanity. We have this need to be seen and heard, and we fundamentally have this need to be loved and to love. So by focusing on what creates connection between us and what actually binds us and what allows us to feel a sense of belonging and safety in the world, Um, we believe, and I very, very deeply on a personal level believe that this um, will have an incredible, positively catastrophic impact in in the future of how we see mental wellbeing. Sure, absolutely, 100%, right? Like I... um... My own journey through depression really started, I don't even know when, but officially with a diagnosis in 2009. And it's been 10 years now of me doing all the things, trying to find my purpose, trying to um, find my place in this world and eventually finding a form of expression that um, that kept me connected to myself and my own state of well-being. So in terms of like 
I guess my question is like, what's your form of expression? Um, I really try and look at it as, you know, I am like each moment is, is my opportunity for self-expression. Um, and, and that can come in so many different ways. I think we can get really trapped by, you know, label. I, I've noticed it in my own career because I'm a writer and I'm a speaker and I was a performer for many years. And by telling myself that's all that I am, I find that it actually limits me from being able to express myself more freely and fluidly. And, you know, the most important thing is to keep trying new things and to be a beginner at something. I was actually having this conversation um, yesterday with, with a friend of mine, you know, um, with speaking because I've done it for so long. I know that I can get on stage with zero prep and do a great job. And that actually doesn't really leave me that vulnerable anymore. But if I was to sing in front of one person, I'd be absolutely shit scared. You know? And I think self-expression is about constantly being a beginner as well, exploring different parts of who you are. So I really value that. Yeah, totally. And 100%, like, uh, I have another show called Carlosophies where I walk on the beach and I just shoot the shit with myself, really, like going through whatever's, sharing whatever's kind of going on for me with like some exploration questions at the end for people to take the lessons from my life and kind of look at their own. And it it is, it, at the beginning, it was like the thing that stretched me, you know, it was like making myself vulnerable, putting myself out there. But now it's second nature and uh, actually interviews stretch me because it's, you know, and and also like over time we become better and more comfortable in situations that we weren't before, right? So it's yeah. like when I first started interviewing, oh, my God, the nerves were just so horrible. Like I couldn't be present <laughs> in it, you know? <laughs> Because anxiety yeah. is a wonderful gift. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't allow you to be present in much. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I, and I, and I just practice, I just show up to these interviews practicing presence. That was really it. And then the more that I do, the more comfortable I get in it. But I totally relate to the singing thing because that was a big thing for me yeah. too was like, you know, I can sing like a champion in my car when it's just me totally. and my five year old. But yeah, <laughs> but get me in front of someone and it just adds all this like, stress and pressure totally yeah so what are the things that stretch you now um pretty much again anything that I'm that I'm not practiced at and that um you know I've been practicing so the beginnings of practicing a bit of um rap and, and spoken word poetry it always comes out after a few drinks so after about half a bottle of red wine I'm the best rapper most confident rapper in the world but to actually like commit to trying to do that um you know, not in not in an inebriated state, because it it encompasses so many of the things that I love and that I'm confident in individually. Like I love words, I love writing, I love um, I love poetry, and I also really love performance. And I love being able to you know uh, perform to an audience of people. And I find it really interesting that putting those things together actually leaves me in this state of like real vulnerability, you know, and probably because I care so much about all of them um, as well. I think that that adds to a sense of nervousness. So that's yeah. one of the things, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> that thing about like the wine too, right? Like I used to have a few wines and I was Dr. Phil um, <laughs> because I didn't trust my own intuition when it came to, you know, like working with other people in that kind of coaching, counselling um, side of things. So it took the wine to give me the courage in order to like connect to my truth, right? And then be yeah. able to express that freely. So I wonder if you've got any tips for people who might be like um, struggling with that, you know, like 
because it's scary, right? Like it's really scary to know that something might be fun to explore, like singing, you know, whatever it is. Anything new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like comedy if someone's been like thinking, oh, I'd love to do stand-up comedy or whatever, you know, like it is really scary. What are your tips for like, you know, for want of a better term, feeling the fear and doing it anyway? No, I think you really hit the nail on the head just before and you said um, trust. It, I didn't trust myself and then after a few ones I could trust myself um, or the, the filter was down and I think it comes down to, um, to that, you know, what do you need to do to put yourself in a state of, of self-trust and I think trusting yourself has everything to do with self-love. Like if you love and accept yourself unconditionally, then there's no reason to not trust yourself, you know, but when you have conditions on, on your own self-love, like I only love myself when I'm being received positively or when other people think I'm really good at something, it's then really difficult to trust yourself because you're going to have this internal hesitation, this internal conflict because it's a condition, right? That's what conditions do. It's um, the same in, in relationship to other people as well, but very much still relevant in relationship to yourself. So I think that's that's the beginning of everything and I'm not just saying that because I run a company that stands for that but I do <laughs> believe that um, in the core of who I am that if you can master your own center and practice and it's a practice and it's not, you know, there's no such thing as um, I think ending that that journey. It's an ongoing journey. But the more you learn to love yourself, it's like you, you, you're comfortable. Like I'm a massive, it took a lot of years to accept and love myself for the fact that I'm a massive dork. You know, and the, and the people that I was always with were like, oh, you're such a dork. And it used to kind of like affect me, like, because I couldn't, I couldn't understand how I can be so cool in so many ways. And then, you know, like run into a lamppole, like two seconds later. Yeah. That's like, why was that such a, an aspect of who I was? But then as I got older and I started to realize like, actually like dorks are really fucking lovable and I can use that, you know, I can, I can embrace that. I can use that. I can be that. And that's cool. Um, it just allows you to navigate the world with more you know, freedom, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The self-acceptance piece is a really big one and that relationship to self, right? Because it's like so often we act in a world, you know, we act, we show up in a way in the world so that we are accepted by others, which often leaves us really feeling bitterness and resentment when we're not acknowledged for that you know um and we do it to ourselves and then we get angry when other people don't fulfill that expectation it's like wild when you really break it down (laughs) it totally is so relationship to self is such an important thing how do you cultivate that Mm, that's such a personal question you know um I guess what I, what I can say that I believe is uniform around everyone is um, to start to be conscious of the questions that you're asking life. I think that depending on the questions that you're asking, you know, about life, about who you are, about other people will really determine the depths in which you're able to formulate a relationship with yourself. I think most people navigate the world and they're, they're thinking like, does my coworker hate me? You know, is that person judging me? What am I going to have for dinner? Like these, these are the core questions that people walk through life thinking about. And if you were just to really tweak them, like, you know, what is my truth? Who do I, you know, what is the legacy I want to leave on the planet? What's the, what's my ultimate type of relationship? You know, like allowing yourself to have a more expansive set of questions, which you 
come to the world with, I really think that that allows you to start to explore a deeper depth of who you are because inside every question is an answer. So you will create that relationship with yourself. I think a lot of people are too distracted and kind of ruled by insecurity and that limits the type of questions they're really daring to ask because I think subconsciously we know as soon as we start to ask the question, mm-hmm. we will go down that rabbit hole. So we yeah, do everything. Pandora's box. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to ask, we don't want to ask the questions. But there are so many profound questions. You know, I write a lot of them um, in my book that I think can really improve the quality of most people's awareness if they were to start asking some of those questions like what do you really want it's a really totally. simple question but yeah. what do you I mean, really you really want you know 100% right like I mean that that's the work that pretty much I do in the world and probably a lot of the work that you do in the world too right asking the questions it's like yeah. and and facilitating the space for people to answer them themselves from their own truth not you know not the the version of truth that that mm. I believe Exactly. Um, but their own. And and we're not really given that a lot of space to do that in this world, do you think? No, I think, um, but I, I also think that, you know, we can blame the world and we can blame society. And yeah, I think there's a lot of cultures that we, you know, unfortunately were born into that we didn't get to choose a lot of the circumstances in which we are marketed at, in which we are taught, in which we are, you know, as vulnerable children um, bestowed upon in terms of these are the values and the frames of life. But I do feel at, um, at a point in every single person's awakening and journey, there needs to come a point where you take radical self-responsibility totally. and you start to actually, because it's empowering, because then you actually, you, you can become the master of your destiny. You can become the captain of your ship. And when you start to do that, you realise wow, the only thing that's determining the way that I'm showing up in this moment is, is me. Mm. But, but how much permission are you really going to give yourself? Like, you know, an everyday situation could be like you're in a meeting, for example, in, in your office and there's things that are being said that actually really morally you disagree with or is making you feel somewhat uncomfortable. How much do you give yourself permission to actually get up out of that boardroom and say, hey, actually, this is not what I'm about and to stand up for something you believe in? Or do you, or do you feel obligated? Do you allow guilt to sort of dictate how you're going to show up in that moment so that you're constantly allowing your circumstances to shape you in a way that's not empowering? Um, and I think this happens a lot. Like in my book, I write about it as in, in our culture, we often are taught that we need to put niceties over what is necessary for us. So there's niceties over necessities. And that's super dangerous. And you're actually not doing anyone a favour, including yourself. Totally. You know, because, yeah, you're, not, it's, you're, not, um, you're not cultivating any trust within yourself. Like if you think about the way, like the way most people shut themselves down, if mm. they were to do that to somebody else, I mean they right. just never would, right? Yeah. But we do subsequently because the best, yes. you know, the best gift, and I think this is, it can be an inspiring thing to realise if you're not enough of a motivation for you. When you start to realise by giving yourself permission, by taking radical responsibility for yourself, what the consequence of that is, is other people in your presence will also feel that same sense of permission and responsibility. And that's powerful. And you can have constructive relationships, not you know, codependent relationships or, you know, power play, I think a lot of that comes when people don't really state their truth and what it is they really need. And I think as well people, you know, can look at someone that's really strong in who they are. Like, um, even an example, my intern was, um, you know, doing some filming around the office today and I was having a very 
um, direct conversation with my executive assistant. But we love each other so much. So our ability to communicate directly is not confronting. It's not scary. It's not, you know, mean. But I could just see this intern was like, you know, like getting some heart palpitations because of how direct we were with each other. And and I said to her, like, do you find this... um, know do you find this quite um confronting to be around and she was like oh yeah like you just really you really like go there and I was and I we just had a conversation about that and I welcomed that into the space and said you know what is it about being able to speak your truth and have a direct conversation that seems confronting or seems um you know uncomfortable and we really got to the nitty-gritty of that and um sort of talked about how in in our culture it's often really it's, it's frowned upon to be able to really state strongly what it is you think and feel and need in the situation and um, had some great breakthroughs around that, which was beautiful. Yeah, it's so, that's so interesting because um, before I have a conversation with someone, I usually take some time to like, you know, sit with myself and, and, and you know, feel into what the intention of the conversation is. And this morning was like, just one of those mornings where it was like rush, rush, client call, you know, just before this, my mother-in-law called because, you know, there's there's um, some drama stuff going on. And and so I wasn't in the space of like, you know, being able to sit down and really get intentional about it. But I did have this thing floating around in my head and I actually wrote it down, confrontation, right? Oh, like cool. how funny is that? Yeah. <laughs> because it's been that a is. theme. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a theme that's been um, raised a few times for me in the last week or so. Uh, particularly in like client work or in my own, in in the way that I show up in the world where I have been a person who's been very afraid of confrontation because it feels like aggressive or something, you know, and I don't know, like as a woman in my 40s, I was kind of raised to be a compliant kind of nice girl. So it is kind of, it's confronting to me (laughs) to be confrontational, but it's, that's like a practice. That's a practice that I'm in right now. Like, you know, we were talking before about the idea of um, really all that can shift, like more uh, remembering our power in any situation. We always have some level of power, even if it's just shifting our own perspective, you know, um, yeah, and so this this has been my practice recently is to go, you know, ask myself, maybe the last year or so it's been like what what truth do I need to speak to be able to look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and be happy with the person that's looking back at me, you know? Yeah, great question. And so many people don't don't take the opportunity to even consider that sharing their truth actually frees the other person too. Massively. Think about how many like 40 year marriages like still haven't landed in that understanding. People give their whole life to, you know, to, um, you know, with that, to, the, to a non-truth because they're afraid of being able to assert who it is they really are. Like it's, that's one of my biggest fears genuinely is to get to the other side of my life and to be like, wow, I was too afraid to actually speak, speak my truth. Mm. Because it's scary, right? Like it's scary for all of us. But I think that prospect is scarier when you can really get your head around like what is the greater, what's the greater fear? And I'm not like I I really relate to what you're saying because I wasn't, um, it was really hard for me to speak my truth, uh, especially coming out of the darkness that I went through as as a teenager and sort of my way of coping was to punish myself, was to turn back in 
on myself. So learning then to reverse that and to have a voice in the world was one of the most difficult pathways ever. I was so used to taking on other people's um, stuff because my condition made them uncomfortable. You know, like that was that was my process, which is crazy looking back. I think um, health, there's a huge link between health and well-being and being able to be really strong and assertive in, in who you are and loving. I, I, I think that there's this yeah, misconception. because confrontation doesn't mean, mean like yeah. aggressive or nasty. It no. can be done in loving, you know. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. kind. I think it's yeah, actually it kind, like when you can do that and, and do that, especially as a woman with um, sensitivity doesn't have to be yeah um aggressive or even really I think that you can practice and it does take practice to a point where you actually become graceful and and in that grace it it doesn't feel confronting it actually feels liberating I think for most people involved yeah because you know if you think about it any anything that you start new you know coming back to that idea of feeling vulnerable when you're a beginner you know exactly like any anything that you you start has this element of experimentation with it, right? So it's like, um, you know, I'm going to practice speaking my truth, and it's going to get ugly, yeah. and you're going to say things messy. and maybe piss yeah. some people off and have to yeah. deal with, you know, whatever. Yeah. But what you learn through all those little experimentations is how to better approach communication with the people yeah. around you. But unless you start. You know, like I always say to people who are like, oh, I want to start a podcast. How do I start a podcast? And I'm like, well, you just start, like, how do you find your voice? Well, you just start talking. That's how you find your voice. Start a podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you start a podcast. Like, it's it's not that hard. There are apps out there that allow you to literally press a button. Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, you don't find your voice until you start using it. Um, It can't happen in a static space. That overcomplication, right? Like, I think that that is just the bane of so many people's, you know, existence and getting in their own way. Like, I remember a parent, a parent talking to me once because I was working with their young person. This was a lot of years ago when I was working mostly with teenagers, and um, she said, "Oh, you know, you're teaching these kids to to, to dream really big, and you know, my my child wants to be a musician, and I just don't think that that's you know the right path. It's it's not safe. It's not blah blah blah. All of the limitations." And I just said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa let's stop for a second. You say that your child wants to be a musician. I'm really interested by that statement. What do you mean by she wants to be? And, and she said, well, she, she wants to be a musician when she grows up. And I said, well, does she, does she currently play her instrument every single day? And she was like, yes. And I said, currently sing every single day? Does she currently write music every single day? And she was like, yes, yes. And I was like, are you not drawing links here? And she was like, I don't understand what you mean. And I said, your, your daughter is a musician. Like she is one that you can't, there's nothing, it's not about like the future tense. Like that is currently what she is. And your role is to accept, you know, who who it is she is in in her entirety. And I think for her, that was like this mind boggling moment of, oh, wow. Like to be a musician, to be an interviewer, to be an author doesn't actually mean to be at this particular level of perfection or fame. It actually just means that's what you're practicing being right now. Totally, totally. I um, last year started learning the ukulele and started singing 
And um, and they were just two things. I'd always said, I'm not a musician, you know, and I did a live stream, uh, like a, you know, Instagram live thing where I was playing my ukulele and I was like, when are you a ukulele player? When you're playing the ukulele. <laughs> like it's actually not, it's <laughs> yeah. not that complex. When are you the thing? Like I think the, the mistake a lot of people make is that they think the they're the thing that they want to be when it's recognised by it, you know, in, in some yeah. kind of external way. In a particular way, yeah, exactly. But it's the same thing, like, why so many people never get started on their dreams is they, um, they're they waiting for other people's permission and reassurance. But, like, one, one way that I often put that to people is if you have a vision inside of your own mind, that's your dream. Like, no one else can see that. The reason it's your dream is you have a path you have a journey in actualizing that before you can then share that with other people and, and no one else can see that inside of you. It actually has to, you have to go on that journey of self backing yourself, of self-confidence, of, of discipline, of commitment so that you can birth that into the world and then share that with other people. Yeah, totally. Mm. So what, like before you mentioned that you were working with teenagers, um, I'm I'm interested to explore this a little if you're open to it because I feel like uh, not that not that the world has been against me or anything though, I have felt like that over the years, um, but I feel like life really changed for me in those really formative teen years. Right, like when I was a kid, I was like doing songwriting circles and pretending I was a radio host and <laughs> starting a school mag and, you know, oh, yeah. doing all the dorky stuff. And then I got to school and I was like, well, survival kicks in, you know, and it's like that stuff is no longer cool. I, you know, I, I've got to kind of like conform here to survive. And and then I literally spent like the next 15 years just floating around, not really connected at all to myself, but connected to what I thought I needed to be in order to, you know, survive in this world. Yeah. And then depression was a gift that brought me back to myself, you know, and and rediscovering slowly, peeling all the layers back um, to figure out, you know, who I really am, which is just that <laughs> dorky kid, you know? <laughs> so yeah. is that, do you feel like that's, that is a, a, what would I say? How would I put that? Is is that a common thread that you have seen through your time working with teens? A hundred percent. Like, and I, it's again. I don't think it's just teenagers. I think that it, you know, we're set to the first time um, in those younger teenage years. Like, I see it from sort of twelve to fourteen. That that's mm. the age bracket where most kids, for the first time, or teenagers, are starting to ask the question, "Who am I?" You know. Who am I? What do I want to do? How do I relate to other people? How do I relate to the opposite sex or the same sex in whatever your sexuality is? How, how am I seen? What, what is my sexuality? You know, th- these are the questions that we're asking for the first time. And I think because um, in our culture, there's actually no coming of age initiation processes other than like, you turn 18 and you're the coolest kid if you get shit-faced with your friends. In every other culture, like, there's been, this is what it means to be a man in the community. This is what it means to be a woman in the community. And you were sort of, it was um, bestowed upon you, that sense of responsibility. But on the flip side of that, there was also this deep sense of honour and acknowledgement. We don't have any of that, but we have a whole lot of expectation and actually no process that allows young people to really familiarise themselves with the change process. So when you're thrown in the deep end, you're being ripped away from your childhood, 
you're not quite an adult. You're in this like liminal space of like, who the fuck am I? Like, what do I value? What, you know, et cetera. I'd really rather be playing with dolls, but I've got to smoke cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's a very confusing time for everyone involved. Yeah. And there's no um, parameters or guidance inside of that. I think it's like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Just after our physiological need, the next need is a feeling of safety and belonging. So that's what you cut to as a survival mechanism. I need to be accepted. But because there's no um, sort of mature guidance in that process, what you do is become, for many, many teenagers, initiated by your peers. And that's super dangerous, right? Mm. Because your peers don't know how to be adults. Your peers don't know how to have sex. Your peers don't know how to drink responsibly. Your peers don't know, you know, what, what your dreams are and how you should be cultivating and nurturing them. Your peers are equally as confused as you and yet the coolest kid's the one that pretends to have their shit together the most, you know, and that becomes the dynamic. And I think when I, when I looked at stats for the first time working in mental health, like 85% of adult mental health challenges first manifested in the adolescent years, to me that was like, like it was this awakening of, wow, like the way that we coped with change for the very first time actually becomes the way that we cope with change a whole entire life until we mm. actively challenge until it. We, that's it, until yeah. we actively challenge it, yes. Yeah. And that requires a level of awareness, right? Yeah, and guidance, I think. Like, I'm a really big believer. No, I, I do feel you can find it within, like if you if you have a very committed practice, whatever that means for you, going within. But there's we're tribal beings, right? Like yes. when, when you have community, when you have acknowledgement, when you have guidance by an elder who doesn't even necessarily need to be older, they just need to be someone that's practiced at understanding the process of life and identity and acknowledgement. I think that can supercharge your ability to then step into your wholeness, you know, who it is you really are. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, if I'm just looking back at my own, you know, mental health journey, which I actually don't even look at it as a mental health journey these days. It's more just been like a a process of self-actualization, if, you know, if nothing else, more than, um, you know, more than a, a mental health journey. So in that, I definitely had help, right? Like I started with a therapist and now I actually just recorded a podcast episode on Carlosophies, which was about, you know, creating your own board of directors, which is essentially gathering people that you trust into a community that are there for, you know, to help you have a sounding board and stay aligned to your truth. And for me, that looks like um, I have a clarity coach, I have a kinesiologist, I had a singing teacher, not working with her at the moment, um, but I I did. Who else? Oh, yeah. like I've got a few other people on my team, right? Like yeah. it, I am the, like it's the board of directors of my life and uh, I'm like the CEO here. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and, it. Uh, and I, and I you know. Table. Here's yeah, right. Ex- board meeting. Yeah, you exactly. And the people who I've board. chosen to have seats on this board are people who aren't telling me what to do because I do not respond very kindly to being told what to do, <laughs> uh, but are there to help direct me back to my truth and, and remind me of that, you know, and I act as a, a board member on plenty of other people's boards. So, you know, I love that idea of like cultivating a community that supports your growth because no no human is an island, you know. We, um, we need to be connected to self, but we also really need to be connected to the people around us 
And I loved the piece that you brought to the space, which is around um, the tribal aspects, right? So the initiation, but also like the reason that Make Some Noise kind of exists is due to that, you know, we were tribal beings. We would sit around in circle and weave and, you know, and, and use both our hands and create. And that, that piece is missing, the coming together. And for... sacredness, you know, like in and ritual, I think like that, that, that distinction between what is sacred and what is profound and then what is profane, what is, what is mundane. And that in, in tribes we had a very clear distinction about what that was and it allowed us to practice sincerity and acknowledgement and also, you know, uh, humility, all of these really important things which we, I feel we need to be um, the fullest version of ourselves is sort of lacking because we live in a world where nothing's sacred. Like everything is instant. Even even me growing up, like basic things, like if we wanted to watch an episode of The Simpsons, we had to wait a week, you know. Like yeah, not, even totally. that, not even that exists anymore. Like nothing is sacred. Everything is now as soon as we want it. We don't have to work for it. And I think that really, really is affecting us in ways that we can't even foresee just yet because yeah. – it, it prevents us from being able to really understand that, you know, it, sacredness is important and then also appreciate sacredness in other relationships as well. Like think about Tinder culture. When you start to dehumanise people in such a way, like I, I can just, I'm, I don't have to show up for the state. I can stand you up because I've got a thousand other people that I could swipe right to if I really wanted. Like that's not a way to look at people. No. And if you think that you're, you, if you're participating in that and, and unaffected by it, you're very, very mistaken. Very mistaken. So how do we how 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 can we go about creating like that kind of sacred connection in our communities? I think what you were saying about um like first of all, actually being conscious, I think, about the people in your life so that you that there's a value, right? I think in, in so many instances people are in each other's lives from circumstance. You know, someone's in your life because they play at your footy club. Someone's in your life because they go to the same gym as you. Someone's in your life because they've always been in your life and you were friends at high school. Like how many people are in your life, and this is a question to all the listeners, how many people are in your life out of pure conscious consideration? Mm -hmm. That is like number one because when you start to consciously consider who it is you want in your life, you're going to want to back your own choice beyond convenience and you're going to want to invest in those people in a different way. I, I see this as an organizational leader. Like I value my employees because I chose them, you know. I had to go through all of the applications. I had to go through the hard yards of like who is the right fit. I had to be really conscious and considerate of that. So then my willingness and my desire to invest in them is really, really high. And it should be the same for your love relationship. It should be the same for your friendships. It should be the same for your coach, you know. I don't think we should be giving so much time to relationships that are purely convenient to us. I think we should have a great deal of time for people that we, um, who are comrades that we've chosen and who lift us up and also for the people that are, um, have gone before us, the people that we really look up to and want to be like. You should have a chunk of your time, like a decent amount of time, that you specifically invest in people that you feel like the, the dumbest person in the room. You know, you feel like you um, are constantly uplifted yeah, and challenged and, and inspired. Otherwise, you know, it's like you've got a question, why, 
for people that have people in their lives that only look up to them or only enable their current way of being, what is it in you that you're scared to evolve, you know, or, or that you're unconscious of? So I think that awareness is, is yeah, the starting point. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of, a lot of people don't, um, you know, stretch themselves in that respect because they're afraid of the rejection, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, that person's really cool. They probably wouldn't want to be friends with me, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's it's the insecurity, right? It's yeah, the insecurity totally. of, um, you know, what if I'm not seen? Again, it's like going back to the beginning of the conversation, people needing to edit themselves in, in order to feel a sense of like self-assurance and self-love. But um, like what you'll find is when you can fully embrace you know who you are in all moments beginner or otherwise then you start to attract people that can unconditionally love you as well which means people that you know you have more to learn from than vice versa because the gift that they have is in is in sharing their wisdom so even in that exchange there's still this beautiful reciprocation um, but you're never going to attract those people if you're not at, a, at your own state of self-assurance. Because I think about, think about it the other way around. If you um, were asked to be mentored by someone and you could see that that person wasn't really committed to their own self, would you really want to give them your time? You know, or would you want to find someone that's really humble and willing to do the work to then give your time to? So it's really about Becoming the person you wish, you know, that you wish was in your life. It's it's that sort of cliche. It's a, just like in a romantic relationship, like the person that you'll be with because until you become that person. That actually brings up something that I've been thinking about the last, actually I had this weird dream about this um, boyfriend that I had, like it was, I wouldn't even really call him a boyfriend. It was like a brief interlude, but it was very intense <laughs> and um, and it didn't end well. Let's just say that. And I had this dream randomly, like, I mean, this was 20 years ago, so it's like a long time ago, but I had this dream the other night that um, he was back and he was, um, you know, offering me scraps and I was, um, you know, right, like, yeah. and I was, I was accepting these scraps, like, oh, I, I can't see you for three weeks, but I could see you on Wednesday you know, and then he wouldn't oh. show and he would like, this was all in my dream and he, and he would yeah. apologize, but it was very reminiscent of the relationship that we had all those yeah. years ago. And, um, I woke up and I was like, oh my God, I have changed so much. There is no fucking way that I would it. accept scraps from anyone now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not an afterthought for people. Yeah. I'm not someone who will stand for, um, you know, like, for that, that yeah. kind of behaviour. I'm not going to take your scraps. Fuck yeah. off. Yeah. Um, and that is not something that I, you know, that was the person that I was. I was a, I was an eager, just waiting for the scraps to land yeah. kind of person. Yeah. Um, and I feel like a lot of people are just like happy with the scraps of life. Yeah. Well, not happy, but too afraid not happy. to, yeah, too, too afraid to be more than that. And, you know, what I was saying before, just before it dropped out was, I think it's a very confronting but highly important thing to understand that no one can save you from yourself. No, like no one, no one can save you from you. And it, until you, and 
you know, you can be in the most romantic love story, like I've been there, where you feel so deeply that this person is your saving grace, you know, that they're, they're going to they're gonna come to save the day. I've even experienced it with mentors and business relationships, you know, but it doesn't have, it's a house of cards. Yeah. It doesn't have solid foundations. No, it totally does not. And it is yeah. destined to come crashing yeah. down around you. <laughs> exactly. If it takes you high really quickly, then it, it's going to come down. Like it's it's physics, right? It's science. Yeah. And something that we, we um, all kind of do, because I think that relates back to this like fast paced society, right? Like we want the quick fix, the quick fix, the instant gratification, um, and really, there's no in that. There isn't any substance. Yeah, exactly. And then we settle for less because we're like, oh, well, something's better than nothing. But just really be present with that way of thinking about life. Like really just take a moment, if you're listening, to take a step back and think what sort of life am I really going to be living if that's how I think about things? You know, like a little bit of company that's actually really empty and soulless is, is better than nothing. And also, why do you see um, aloneness as nothing? This is the other thing. Like, why do you value yourself so little that you would see aloneness as nothing? And this is a really deep thing for people, I think, because I think a lot of people share a fear of being alone. And it takes a lot of work. It takes work to get to a point where you're like, even when I'm actually, when I'm alone, I'm in the best company that I have, you know, that I know. Like that is actually really deeply profound for me to be alone with myself because I love myself unconditionally. I fully accept myself. I can be anything that I want to be. Um, that's the sort of relationship that's possible with yourself. And when you have that relationship with yourself, everything's a bonus. You know, everything outside of that is just like your cherry on top. It's not, it's not this piece that you're trying to like get into the holes inside of you. It's like, a wow, I'm so complete. Now what? You know, now mm. if if I go on an adventure with someone, it's going to be extra great and you're, you're going to also attract people that feel that way about themselves. And then it also becomes a naturally giving relationship, you know, where you're full and you're in overflow. So when you find other people that are like you, they're just going to want to give to you and you're just going to want to give to them. And that's an incredible, they're incredible relationships to have in your life across the board. And very important, but you cannot find those relationships until you've done the work on on you. And we're so terrified. You know, we will spend decades avoiding a single moment in our own company. Just think about that. Like, and this is nothing that you can't breathe through. Like it's gonna feel scary, it's gonna feel hard, you're probably gonna have a breakdown in the shower, you're gonna cry, it's gonna be painful, but I promise you it will get to a point where it eases I promise and it you. does it totally does um mm-hmm. you know the actually the uh, catalyst for my first official bout of depression was moving to an area where I knew nobody and yeah. was working for myself and just you know basically all alone and yeah. it it just you know drove me to the totally. brink yeah but now I crave that so much. I love being by myself. I, yeah. you know, the, my, the worst thing I could ever imagine doing would be going to a movie by myself. How awkward, you know, or having a coffee by myself. So awkward. You know? I, know. Dinner. I know. And now I'm like, oh my God, give me, like, give me I all love that too. I love dating myself. 
Yeah. I, I genuinely love dating myself. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just a loner, but I, I like to see it as like that is a healthy relationship with you because why yeah. not? Like, totally why right. not? Yeah. Have you, when, like, if you look back on your life, were there, have you always just loved your own company? Or was there a version of you that was an, like a bit of an escapist? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I mean, it was an interesting journey because, you know, my mental health journey from when I was a very young teenager, um, which developed into a really critical eating disorder um, that went on for a lot of years, you know, five or six years. And I think in that, because people couldn't handle what I was going through, the aloneness was sort of, it was, um, it wasn't necessarily, yeah, I I was forced to get comfortable with it. So I don't know, I maybe would have been like that, but it's hard to say because I can't separate it from the experience that I went through. But I did definitely get to a point where I was just completely okay by myself. You know, I actually, that was desire, that was desirable because I just felt like every time I was around someone for too long, I had to pretend because no one could meet me um, at the place that I was meeting myself, which I think is the gift of pain. Like it, it cracks you open. It forces you to meet deeper and deeper parts of yourself. Um, and then coming out of that, like when I started to recover and I had a very different lease on life and a very different um, perspective on life, especially compared to a lot of other people my age. Um, who were just trying to figure out who they were, I sort of knew who I was in in, in a very deep way because I had met myself and, and my philosophy of life was very much about service and about giving. So the time that I was spending with people was a, of a very different nature and, um, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. But I know that I couldn't have found that unless I went through that period of like severe isolation and it usually happens with me as well. I know that I'm about to create something when I feel that sense of withdrawal and I experience it across the board. Like I don't, um, I just develop this really intense in, in, introspection and introversion. Like when I was writing my book, I was very introspective. And it was like I'd go to a coffee with a friend and I'd feel like a little bit socially inept, but that's because I needed that time to actually be in my own creative process because sometimes we need to go through a process before we share it, before we know how we're going to articulate it. And I sort of think trying to articulate things too soon is actually can be really frustrating and really damaging, especially for an artist. You need that time where you're sort of, you know, locked away in your dungeon or whatever your version of that is. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like writing a book to bring up your shit, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the page doesn't give you feedback. This is the thing, right? <laughs> the page does not give you feedback. It's just you and your own judgment versus the page. But it's yeah. so great. Like even if you're not, if you don't want to be an author, I would say to anyone, just spend 10 minutes a day doing like a stream of consciousness writing. It's a really powerful way to get to know yourself and to practice being alone as well. Yeah, totally. You know, um, I was thinking when you were saying about like, you know, being being isolated and those changes that you go through, because when you go on a journey of like self-discovery and self-actualization, then uh, often you can be feel a bit displaced and alone because suddenly you can't relate to people at the same level. And I think when you cultivate this relationship with yourself where you're honouring your truth, then uh, it's much easier, at least it has been for me, but it has been a process too, in um, being okay being misunderstood 
Yeah. And I know that I would rather honour myself um, now than to try to fit in. Exactly. I think it's so like the biggest key for that is actually getting to a place where you fully realise and understand and feel because it's a feeling that sometimes silence speaks way louder than words. Like and to actually just not need to have so much to say or, or to prove. And when you can just be fully confident and, you know, what, when, I, when I ever feel myself, and this started as a practice that I was terrible at because I had a lot to prove because I felt so misunderstood. Yeah. So, again, that. like, yeah, I was awkward at this in the beginning and now I feel really strong in it. Every time I went to justify myself, I practiced actually taking a breath in and, and just returning to my center and my silence. And the more I did that, like, I'm at a place now where I really – I never really justify myself because I trust like the choices that I'm making, they're right for me. And some people are going to get it and they're my people, you know, and some people aren't going to get it and they're not my people. And that's, that's okay. okay. Like bless them on their journey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I just totally relate to that. Uh, the practicing silence thing, you know, it's like, um, yeah, as someone who has, has spent a lot of her life trying to prove herself taking a step back and just like even just asking what's my motivation for sharing mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it's a good one. You know, it's yeah. like because um, often it's to be seen or yeah. to be heard or to be understood and not that those are necessarily um, bad things but yeah. if, you're, if your motivation is constantly to be heard, yeah. then. Um, you push it away. That's the thing. Yeah. As soon as you want it too badly, it you push it away. Whereas if you, it's sort of like I call it having a soft a soft control in life. You know, like this is to me is like intention setting. Like you mm. can you see what it is you want, but you're not putting pressure on it. Think about yeah. when you're pursuing someone, right? Like you can really like them, but if if you're you know in the first week of knowing them, putting all of this pressure on them to marry you, you're probably going to muck it up a little bit, right? So it's like just be a little bit more relaxed in in your approach and in those moments where you really want to be seen or really want to be heard if you just come back and actually see yourself witness yourself hear yourself you know do do it for you first and then what happens is you become the demonstration of how you want other people to treat you so the consequence of it pretty much always like clockwork as soon as you're that for yourself that people that you were wanting to see and hear you generally will actually then show up because you've made space for it to happen. Yep, so true. It is all, it really does all come back to seeing yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I speak to a lot of clients about the control thing because it's like what happens when, when, you, when you're not trying to control what you want, what happens? Well, then you have <laughs> what you want, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a chat during my next book which is um you know surrender is the ultimate form of control and yes. it's um, the premise of the chapter is that the only person that has control in the room is the person that doesn't need to control anything totally that's, that's <laughs> the only person that can have the control yeah I mean that's what I love about life it's just full of contradictions you know yeah, it's right? like paradoxes. <laughs> yeah paradoxes exactly it's like yeah that is so true and and one of the things that I have struggled with over the years is that idea of surrender 
as a means to an end, you know, because that ain't surrender, sister. If you yeah. are surrendering in order yeah, to get with something. An expectation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let uh, it go. Let it yeah. go. That's it. Well, thank you so much for um, spending some time with me today. Can you let everyone know where they can connect with you? And uh, yeah, and if you want to plug your book, more than welcome to go for it. Thank you. Yeah, I would love everyone to grab a copy of my book. The best place to go is just nicolegibson.com.au and you'll see links on the homepage. And because you're local or you might be supporting um, this awesome local podcast, we're running a retreat in um, Yukai, just north of Byron Bay in June, and we have a few spots left. So we'd love to see some of your beautiful faces there from the 13th to the 16th of June. Awesome. Is that at the Gaimea? It is, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, that's awesome. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I super appreciate it. Um, yeah, what a lovely, insightful conversation. So there, I guess there's one last thing that I'd like to um, leave people with, and it's generally like an invitation. So, um, you know, for them to kind of have a crack at. So have you got any invitations for people? Great question. Oh, man, so many things I would love to invite you all um, to practice. I think based on our conversation, I invite you today, maybe after you finish this podcast, to clear your busy schedules of 20 minutes and to really sit with yourself. Only 20 minutes in silence, no distraction. It'll feel like a lifetime. It'll feel like forever. (laughs) Until you break through the the resistance and then it will feel like... Until you forget about time and then it will be over and you'll be like, what? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and sit with everything that we've talked about because it's been, you know, it's been a really profound conversation and find that stillness in you. And then once you've done that, proceed with a deeper sense of permission to speak your truth, to be unapologetically you. Yeah. Mm. And practice, you know, like it doesn't have to be you telling everyone in your life to fuck, go fuck themselves. You know, like no, that, great, that's not, not what we're recommending here. <laughs> <laughs> but just like being aware of when you're feeling stifled and when you're feeling you're holding back from speaking your truth mm-hmm. and practicing, like just, you know, just opening that valve a little and, um, yeah, and and cultivating it over time, right? Like, not don't just go tell everyone to go fuck themselves unless you really. Yeah, that's last resort. That's last resort. Communicate it before it gets to that point. Yeah, right. So, you know, the first thing could be saying no to an invitation that to a social event that you don't want to go to, and you'd usually go out of obligation without explaining and trying to justify the reasons why you don't want to go. Just being like, "Sorry, can't make it." Yeah. Um. You know that that's where this stuff can start really, really simple and small, right? Yeah. Wherever your resistance is. Whenever your initial points of resistance are, that's where the practice begins. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if there's a if excuses start to come up when you think about the yoga class you're going to go to this afternoon, like there's your practice. That's your yeah. practice. Go to yeah. it. Move totally, to and connect to the truth of what's actually going on for you in that moment. Yeah, and then express that. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much. My Loved pleasure. it. Thanks, guys. And that's a wrap. Go to carlynimmo.com to find ways to connect to your creativity and live life on your frequency. Until next week, make some 